I, I wonder I how many it. people who come into my podcast studio realize that the painting behind me is actually sideways. <laughs> well, I knew that immediately <laughs> when I first saw it, John, uh, which was a couple of weeks if, ago. If you look here, it's, it's the like, signature is in the lower <laughs> left hand corner, uh, but it fits. It we does just, the purpose. We popped it in there because that's, you know, that's the best way. You know, I would <laughs> I would start with the frame. Yeah. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, what is the first thing you see going on here? You know, I would advise my students, <laughs> would give them works to read. And, you know, what's the meaning? Uh, what's the meaning? Uh, what is Shirley Jackson really trying to say in her novel, The Haunting of Hill House? Or what does this, we would sometimes use paintings and images, and I would have them write about what is the meaning of this? And I would advise them always start at the literal level especially if it's visual. Mm. What, what is it literally doing? Well, literally, we see this painting behind you, John. It has a gold frame, very attractive. It has gold within the painting itself, which picks up on the frame. Uh, there are shades of gray and blue, light blue, bluish gray. Something's going on with that. There's a little bit of green. Maybe it symbolizes life at the bottom coming up, you know. And you play with all of this stuff. And to some extent, that's how you approach a poem. You know, it's not so much what, what a poem means, it's how a poem reads. Because everything in poetry, if, if you just take a random page, it how it appears on the page is adding information to the meaning of the poem. Wherever a poet... If, if they know what they're doing, when a poet ends a line, a line ending is a form of punctuation. Mm -hmm. That's how one of the main ways that poetry is different from prose. Where you break off in a stanza and there might be a little break as there, as there is, a, you know, here, that, that means something. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, there is if you look at some of Walt Whitman's poetry, his poetry will, you know, he'll have a few lines running all the way across. Mm -hmm. The next line will have one word. Or if it, the, or if the it's done for a purpose sort of drips down. Uh, and yeah. actually, I'm, I'm using, I actually have a drippy poem, a drippy, here. a drippy poem. Um, you know, clue, that's, that's one of the classic ones. Can, uh, can they course. see yeah, that? Let's see. I'll get a little closer here. I'll step in here um the one on your on your left this is okay. a poem that begins here and can and ends on this page yeah, you go. can see it's it's a graphic but the term for this is concrete poetry when the physical appearance of the poem on the page is where the meaning lies and i definitely have some ideas of where this poem came from but i you know, this is a kind of an abstract work, and I would love to to hear what people think about something like this. But yeah. I each uh, of the three sections begins with an introduction. So I introduced my thirty three poems. Then Jerry writes a, a short introduction to hers, and then Paul does to to his, and. 
so we were forced to kind of say something about our work job <laughs> and uh, as painful as that can be as painful it's as painful can be. but it's also fun because anytime <laughs> you get a chance to talk about what we're as writers doing and that's one definition of a writer to me a writer is someone who wants their words to be read to be consumed to because the reader completes the process you can write a masterpiece and stick it in your desk drawer and it never sees the light of day yeah right is it really finished i don't think so that's interesting that's interesting because maybe uh, are there artists who say well i wrote a song and i sang it to the empty air but it's not empty because there's maybe god's there i don't know and and then that's it and i've created uh but did anyone listen <laughs> if a tree falls it, it, it does yeah the, the tree <laughs> does make a noise oh i think of course it does make a noise so this is go. probably a proof of the existence of god but that's another topic <laughs> which we will address on a future show john yeah or today i don't i mean it doesn't yeah. matter to me so I, like i said i have no place to go dan <laughs> so any, <laughs> yeah it's life kinda, is tough kinda, i know it's kind of right? snowy out today you know kind of uh, snowy don't have the kids this weekend and, uh, <laughs> yes, uh, you know the movie you just starred in i heard was uh, uh didn't do too well at the box office so you may have seen it at the drive-in theater folks it's called john Kroll goes to college with a werewolf. <laughs> uh, some people saw it at the drive-in theater and drove into the screen, but uh, but you've bounced back. Well, <laughs> we're kind of riffing here, as you see. So here's what I said when we came up with this format. And I said, I want each of us to have a small introduction to what it is we're doing. And I wrote this. I have a confession to make. Having already put together a comprehensive collected works, I had more than 200 poems assembled. When Paul, Jerry, and I developed this idea for a book of the three, I merely took the first 33 poems from the top of the collection. I had maybe, I don't know, 210 poems. I just lopped off the first 33 there i had my quota you were expected some grand strategy behind the selection that's what poems usually do for reasons related to editorial theme requirements there's a, a strategy we're going to have a book uh, that deals with nature we're going to have this book deal with animals as our theme well we didn't have a theme so going back to what i said well and good but Readers don't need a theme to club them over the head. I gave them way more credit than that. It's poetry, after all. And anyone who reads and appreciates, appreciates should require nothing more than to be left alone with the words. I find beauty in randomness, as chaos theory shows, patterns for which we would never dream to search do lay hidden. Proceeding from that beauty, I discovered patterns in these poems I hadn't noticed before. Look for me and my themes. They're hiding in every line. And that last line kind of sums up how I used poetry from the beginning and probably how I still use it. You know, my, I make my living with prose, which is pretty much straightforward. Sure. 
poetry is where I get a chance to disguise and hide some very personal things mm. that otherwise I wouldn't address. And that's how my, some of my work is. And uh, I think readers come to my work as kind of puzzles and maybe riddles to solve. The clues are all there. Mm. Uh, perhaps only I know what they specifically mean, but I think at least from your point of view, but once the art yeah. is in the ether, then and that's it can, where it is. It can have a million other uh, and the reader purposes, other 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 themes of anything, you know, it, and it's all based on the eye of the beholder, right? Yep. The the reader who confronts these 100 poems will bring all of their background, all of their experience, all of their successes, failures, triumphs, tragedies, all of their personal hangups, all of their personal togetherness to, to the work. And they will, from that perspective, in, infuse the poem with their own prejudices. And I, and I use the word not as a bad word, just their own Point of view. Point of view, inclinations. Sure. And that's the fascinating thing when you, these poem, poetry to me is almost like a literary inkblot test. It is. And how, and I've, I would see this with my students, you know, we'd give them a poem, uh, William Carlos Williams' famous poem, The Red Wheelbarrow, an imagist poem, if there ever is one. And see if I can remember it. Everything depends upon a shiny red wheelbarrow glistening in the rain next to the white chickens. And the background to that poem was William Carlos Williams was a country doctor, lived in New Jersey. And he had spent the previous two nights, this is when doctors made house calls, nursing the sick child of this couple that he had as patients on the verge of death. And through his ministry and who knows what else the child recovered and when the ordeal was over the dr williams steps out on the porch and it had just rained this is a a farmhouse as you can tell by the poem and it struck him having saved this life and seeing the parents just crying with joy it struck him how important every little moment Mm. of life is, which is why he starts out the poem, everything depends upon the red wheelbarrow, the objects glistening in the rain, the white chickens, the ordinary day-to-day things that we pass by. But when you have a brush with death and you come back from it unscathed, you are changed. You are a changed man. Really any experience as you and I both well know, John, 
any experience that knocks you on your ass and just flattens you and you come back from it, you are a different person. And that's what that poem is. And mm. it's that kind of thing that poets do, you know, they hide in between the lines. At least that's what I do. So, uh, so <clears throat> I, by the way, I love that. And I love the moment because the moment is all we have. And that's all there is. That's all there is. Past is over, future is yet to come, and the <laughs> moment slips by, and we can't grab That's it. That's it. There's nothing else but right here, right now. How, how do you stop? How do you grab it? One way to grab it, it is artists have been showing us since, the, since, I guess, humans became conscious. You think of the cave paintings, John, done you know, tens of thousands of years ago. We had to express something about how life is. And I think any product of art, again, something that does not serve a practical purpose first before an aesthetic purpose is an attempt to capture now, whether it's a painting or whether it's a poem or a piece of sculpture, it's, it's the poet trying to, or the artist or the sculptor trying to to stop this elusive now-ness that escapes us all. And, you know, the one thing I know that I never wanted to have happen, and it won't happen, is to reach the end. I'm 70 years old, so I'm, I'm playing definitely well into the back nine. You don't want to get to that point and just say, I should have. Why didn't I? You know, why, why didn't I try? I could have done that. I should have done that. And uh, oftentimes when we try things and we fail, we think that, uh, oh, wow, this is awful. But at the end, you know, you're going to look back on it and say, I gave it a shot. I tried. I did the best I could. You never want to look back and say, I tried and I tried. But then if I I knew, if I just tried a little bit more, (laughs) it was going to, it was gonna happen and you, you can't know. avoid that moment because i think <laughs> in a in a moment that is as uh, serious and as sacred as death that there's no more illusion and you know you hear about deathbed conversions and and uh, people have a hard time with the concept of their mortality i think are those who have reached that point and they have no choice but to confront that question. And, and I think to some extent, all of us will realize, yeah, we, we failed in some way. But you know what? The, the overall uh, impression will come through. And it's something you can't fake. And it's something that only you and whatever else awaits us will understand and it's there and you know it's no secret that artists deal with stuff like that yeah i think i think all of the time when when you though find some level of peace um peace of mind yeah uh, you know it really uh you you find it and ultimately even at that deathbed (laughs) now we're getting super existential here um you know uh 
it is like, you know, if there is a purpose and we're here to learn lessons and we're here to uh, serve something out and, you know, if our soul's purpose is if we're able to climb the ladder there and, and, and do what we need to do in this lifetime, you know, sometimes that means in our physical world, we didn't really do the things that maybe we thought we could or should have, but that doesn't mean on a deeper level, you didn't achieve what the soul needs to achieve in this life. Sure. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, like, right. and, that, and that's where the peace, I think, you know, comes in. And when you talk about people who have, uh, you know, near death experiences or, or what have you, I think, I think there's much more uh, solace <laughs> than there is disappointment. So there you go. Mm-hmm. We, we've, <laughs> We've gone there, Dan. We, we've gone there. Okay, let's let's uh, swim back to the surface here, John. <laughs> and uh, as you well know, I don't mind going there, but uh, maybe in a future broadcast when this this. Uh, when your book of religion comes when out. it's a book of of religion what does faith mean what does what is the difference between and, faith and, and, and belief yeah. and, and i don't want to say book of religion i just but i just know that religion it's, it's is a, a big short part name. of it yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, it's Spiritual. it's really a book of uh, it's a philosophical book that where i try to take on the big question why are we here sure. what does it all mean and i will be the first to say how the hell do i know i don't know I don't know, but I have thoughts on it. And this book tries to share what those thoughts are as a point of stepping off to a larger discussion and really points of thought for people who will read this book and think about these questions uh, myself. You know, it's a book that very much deals with uh, issues that were addressed by the great uh, psychologist and psychiatrist Carl Jung, mm. who did pioneering work in the uh, the unconscious and the subconscious. Speaking, speaking by the way, you speaking of majors. Uh, that's what I majored in college. It was psychology. Oh, did you? So, so you, you are <laughs> familiar going with, back. And yes, I'm very familiar with Jung, and he was my yeah. favorite. You know, I mean, uh, the Jungian archetypes. That was pioneering work. You know, uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, who, in my opinion, if you want to understand what's going on today, post-modernism, post-World War One, into the chaos that we're seeing today, you need to, to really understand what Friedrich Nietzsche was about. Because he was born probably, uh, I'm going to just make this up, 1845 or so, died in 1900, which is kind of symbolic. And... He's the linchpin that links the the past before all of the technological, industrial, military craziness and the future. And those two particularly play a major role in this book. And I'll probably, it was a book that I first, started believe it or not in 1990 <laughs> wow <laughs> and i have gone through so many versions of it and my ideas 
and notions have changed so much over the years that there's almost a reluctance to finally put down this is what I declare because I'm not meaning to declare anything but just to again share this these insights it would actually be fascinating to see the uh draft notes uh be adjusted over 30 uh, years you know I, because that is i mean the 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 literal wow, process that's an idea of, no that is a, because uh, i still it, have there, that is. 1990 free idea on a podcast there you go I, I have the 1990 version of the manuscript, which probably came in at about 100,000 words. Uh, I sent it off to a publisher. It, it went uh, to various houses. My agent um, said it got a good response, but I needed to pare it down into a more digestible format. So I did another version of it, which was uh, maybe about three quarters of the length and then I let it be for a while. And uh, when I took it up again, off and on, but when I took it up for, uh, with seriousness over the first year of the pandemic, I really dove into it. And uh, I, I came up with a version that was 220,000 words. And I've gotten that down now to about 182,000 words. Do you ever look back at things you wrote 30 years ago, mm, 40 yeah. years ago, and say, Ugh. yeah, <laughs> yeah? I mean, I'm sure there's some stuff that you said, wow, that's brilliant. Um, I could have done it better. I, I, I could have done sure. it better. Or even like, gosh, that was really good. Like, you know, because I've done both. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, generally, I don't know about you, John, but I, you know, did all those thousands of radio shows and TV shows and guested on a bunch of them. And I never liked to go back and listen to the show or watch the show. I just didn't like it. It existed in the moment. And for me, if I go back, I say, oh, why did I say that? I could have said that differently. I forgot to bring this up. You know, it's uh, we all have the, I think, all artists and creators of which you are one have the inner critic. And I've found that you you don't let the inner critic become a perfectionist because no one's, unless you're Don Larson on October (laughs) the 8th, 1956. One time, just yeah, one time. <laughs> yeah. Game six of the 1956 World Series. And Don Larson threw a perfect game. Only one in series history. Unless you're Don Larson on that day in Yankee Stadium, you're not going to throw a perfect game. And so I tend to. Uh, let and, even, and even if we have the same metaphorical perfect game, it doesn't come around that often. Oh, no. you know what I'm saying? Not so, as so frequently what... as it did for Don Larson, who the irony was for the rest of his career, a mediocre picture. <laughs> There's a funny story about that game. He was not supposed to pitch that day. I forget it was maybe Allie Reynolds or somebody else. And uh, that somebody else couldn't take their turn. Larson was a known partier. He would life of the party, hard drinker. And the night before, knowing he was not going to pitch, went out and got plastered. This is New York City. There's a 
bit of a nightlife in New York City, John. I don't know if you realize that. <laughs> I and, have heard that. I've heard mm -hmm. that. <laughs> Larson went out and got hammered, and he comes in the next day hungover, thinking he's not going to pitch, and he goes to his locker room, and he sees the ball, what Casey Stengel, the manager, would do if you were pitching that day, and it's not like today in baseball where they have starting rotations like science, you know, mm -hmm. you, you didn't necessarily know. This is the sixth game of the world series. The Yankees are down three to two. If they lose, they go home. Larson goes to his locker room and sees the ball uh, at the top shelf of the locker. And he realized I'm pitching today. God. <laughs> and he goes out and throws a perfect game. Yeah. Yep. So uh, if I may, can I read a poem? Yes, or two? And, and just a real uh, quick thing on that. Sometimes yeah. oh, when you are not feeling well and you know you're not just 100%, sometimes the focus that you have is greater. And I go back to that time that Michael Jordan, uh, he had the flu or something. I don't know what it was, but he was clearly, clearly sick. And it was against the Utah Jazz, I think it was. And he was unconscious. I mean, he mm -hmm. was unstoppable. Mm -hmm. They couldn't guard him. He hit everything. Of course, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan. But that game in particular, mm -hmm. and he was sick. And I think there's there's a mental uh, level that you, you have to get to to overcome it. And sometimes you outperform what your normal performance would be. So anyway. I think that's true. You look, Mantle, Mickey Mantle was famous for that. Mantle, Whitey Ford, and Billy Martin, big partiers. Mantle would often come later on when he tried to get sober too late in his life. Uh, really a sad story. Yeah, it is. Uh, yeah. The Mick would often show up hungover and go out and have his best days. I think there's a lot to what you say. I think of the, the great, in my opinion, Bill Russell, the great center for the Boston Celtics, the mm. greatest player in basketball history, only because of the way he changed the game before every game. Still one of the most underrated basketball players in the history of the game to this day. Yeah, well, even, even back then he was overshadowed by Wilt Chamberlain, but he ate. He had Wilt's lunch. He did it. You he, know, he had Wilt for lunch. The only player who knew how to get into Wilt's head. Before every game, literally, Russell would get so nervous and so keyed up that he'd throw up. And on the on the days where he was under the weather, maybe he had a cold or something, he would have to deal with that and throw up. And he even mentions this, came across this in an interview, that just what you said, John, your point, that when he was not at his best, he played at his best because he had to dig in and get more. Mm. You know? It's interesting. Interesting. All right. So let me read uh, poetry. Let's all right. Do so, this now. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll do a couple. here. By the way, Dan Valenti is feeling fine. You know, he's not under the weather, you know, but no, he's still going to perform at a high level. Thank you. On this uh, reading. And, uh, <laughs> knock on. It's wood. Wood. I think, I knock on wood. I'm feeling great. And it's my smoothie every morning. That's part of it. And my daily. Oh, do you drink smoothies? Oh, I am a smoothie man. Do you make it or does uh, I make it at least okay. in my Vitamix? Do not miss a morning and try not to miss a day of a four mile walk. Nice. Which is again, what we talked about earlier, you know, just stepping away and kind of, I do a lot of that when I walk, just mm. 
And I assume when the winter is, uh, well, maybe even during the winter, but when the winter subsides, uh, more time in the brook, the river. Mm-hmm. You have a, yeah. you, there's a river that runs through nearby uh, yeah. your, your house. On her property. <laughs> yeah, on our property, on property, we have this great river. And uh, as a matter of fact, uh, during the cold spell, it froze over. And Lisa and I got the shovel out, cleared the snow, and actually had a chance to play Hans Brinker and put on my skates. Nice. Skate on the river uh, where I tend to live in the summer, by the way. Nice to have that in the backyard. That is awesome. What a cool job. Anyway, so, you know, they just, uh, and I do not want to get into baseball. As you said, I, I did a lot of baseball books back in the 80s and 90s. And, and as Chico Esuela used to say on Saturday Night Live, played by Garrett Morris, baseball had been very, very good to me. I, I, I wrote the baseball books just at the right time. And, and you know, it's funny because uh, when you're with, um, this is back in the day, publishing was a totally different industry than it is today. But I did most of my books with Viking Penguin, which is one of the big New York houses. And when you have a, a hit, which we had with uh, the, the first book I did for them, The Impossible Dream Remembered, they want you to do the same thing. And so we did a series of baseball books. And I grew up a baseball fan, loved doing it, got to hang out with a lot of uh, uh, baseball teams uh, back in the 80s, including the Red Sox. And so it was, it was fun doing it. The game has now changed tremendously. Mm-hmm. They just settled a, a long lockout because the owners and the Major League Players Association could not agree on how to divvy up billions of dollars, yeah. yep. billions of dollars, okay? We're talking at a time now where uh, Mary Jane and Joe Kapansky are going to the gasoline station and filling up their gas tanks and paying, you know, $4.34 a gallon. That's probably going to go up because of what's happening in Ukraine. You know, it's really lost all connection with what even back in your day, John, the the ordinary fan, the ordinary fan who could walk up to, I remember walking up to the box office at Fenway park in the seventies and they say, uh, the ticket office, can I help you? Yeah, I'd like uh, uh, four boxy tickets for me and my buddies. Uh, where would you like to sit? And we'd name our seat. Now, what's, what's it uh, taking uh, a family of four? If you took your family to the ball game at the Yankee Stadium or Fenway, John, you're set back, what, four or $500? Yeah, yeah. It, uh, that, that may be low estimate. It's yeah, probably at this low. Point. Yeah, and, and so, yeah, totally inaccessible to the average Joe, as it were. So um, they, they, yeah. they've lost totally. me now. But yeah. I do still enjoy the game. The, the game we used to play growing up, uh, played, lived at Deming Park, played in countless Sandlot games, played organized ball in Little League and Babe Ruth. And, yeah. uh, and happily, we can still go to Wakona Park and see a good ball game. Yeah. And, and, uh, and, and, and minor league ball and collegiate ball is relatively immune from that type of uh, inaccessibility and just greed that 
powers the major league version of the game. <clears throat> so baseball, just in the abstract and purely as a game, is still something uh, that I love and have fond memories. Here is a poem. <clears throat> if you want to follow along on page eight. Yes. Here, <clears throat> that was written for this book. And it was before the lockout, but I knew it was coming. And this is a poem called Fair or Foul. And in this poem, I use baseball as a metaphor for life, mm -hmm. which is one of the great, why there's so much great baseball literature, because it does, it's pastoral. You go home. The idea is to go home. And here is the poem, Fair or Foul. The fragrant grass even topped from the mower's blade, wears a lime coat of home whites and road gray shade. Whitewashed lines determine fair or foul. The ball has no motive. It will land as hit, an indifferent reaction to the swing of a bat and Willie losing his hat. But the batter, what deceptions lie under that human's practiced swing it plays out when the ball is tossed and the plays the thing we are star-crossed and the game it is won or lost there it is fun to compose something like that i'll read one more here this was a poem that i wrote uh, the day after John Lennon was assassinated. I wrote, you wrote it all the way back then. Yeah, that was December the 8th, Feast of the Immaculate Conception for uh, the Catholics. The, now what uh, page is this, by the way? Yeah, this is page 21. Okay. It was December the 8th. I was house-sitting for a friend. And it was uh, a below zero night. I remember how cold it was. And it was Monday night. We were watching Monday night football. The New England Patriots, John Smith, their field goal kicker, is about to kick the tying field goal, sending in the game into overtime. Howard Cosell breaks into the broadcast with the sad news that John Lennon was assassinated, mm. killed, gunned down in New York City. It was a shock. Yeah, it's huge. To, to, I mean, to this day. To this, why would anyone want to kill someone like John Lennon? Yeah. And I wrote this poem the day after and worked on it ever since and finally got it to a version that I did for this book. It had not been published before. And it, the title is The Man Who Got Out of His Car. And if those of you who don't know, John Lennon had just come back from mixing what was his final album, Double Fantasy, with his wife, Yoko Ono. And they had just come back from the studio that night on December the 8th, doing uh, one of the final mixes. And John was in a great mood that day. He was excited about bringing music back into his life he had had a five-year hiatus after he uh, left the beatles in his early solo career and then took five years off and this is his comeback album couldn't have been a happier guy finally troubled man 
all of his life, lost his mother in a car accident early. And he was that classic angry young man. And it finally seemed that he was getting it together. He steps out of his car and is gunned down by this overweight young man who has in his hands and was seen reading earlier before Catcher in the Rye by J.D. Salinger. And Lennon gets out of the car. Mark Chapman, the killer, steps up to him and just unloads uh, the gun in, into John's chest. Sits down calmly at the curbside and waits to be arrested. Who knows why? Wanted to be famous for killing a beetle? Come on. So let me read this. The man who got out of his car. Immaculate Conception, again, that's the reference to the day, December the 8th, 1980. Immaculate Conception, night sky feeder. The man gets out of his car. Get your pipe in. Uh, check that. Get your pipe and put that in, paperback reader. That's a play on the Beatles song, Paperback Writer, and an allusion to the fact that Chapman was reading the novel. Get your pipe and put that in, paperback reader. I'm telling Chapman where to stick it. Catcher in the rye, my ass. Your finger on the trigger. Nobody can do you no harm because happiness is a warm, coward gunslinger. Making a play on some of John's lyrics. Steps out unarmed except for his wit grabs his stomach and screams, Ringo, not ready for the hit. Witness relatives, meaning Yoko, who's by his side when this occurs, falling trees, slumps on the, the Dakota steps, misunderstanding all he sees. All of what he says is meaningful. That's the end of that poem. And, and the end of the poem is a play on his uh, song that has the lyrics, half of what I say is meaningless. All of what he says is meaningful. Poetry gives us a chance to address, and certainly as John Donne, the poet said, Every man's death diminishes me. Seek not for whom the bell tolls, the funeral bell. It tolls for thee. And every death does diminish us, John. And whether it's John Lennon or the people who are these innocent people who are caught up in what's going on in the Ukraine. It's, it's a tragedy. It shouldn't happen. And, and poetry is a way... A, a compact way and just one page to, to make a statement about it as I tried to do with that. And to me, it's therapeutic before anything else. You know, it allows you to get on paper. It's one of the classic remedies of therapy in your psychology major. You have uh, patients or people who are in mental distress, keep journals, try to write it out. 
great. You know about that. Sure. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, it's part of the, actually, you know, it's interesting. I was thinking how uh, John Lennon said half of what I uh, write is meaningless. And, half uh, of what I say <laughs> is meaningless. You know? But I say you say it just to reach you, Julia. That was a song he wrote for his mother. Uh, and it's on the White Album. And he wrote it. He never got over the death of his mom. It happened when he was a lad, like 11 years old. And she had just got through visiting her sister, John's aunt, Mimi, who raised John. Julia, his mother, was this free spirit, loved to play music, just full of laughs, didn't take being a mom seriously, although she was a mom, if that makes sense. Sure. And yeah. she had just left from visiting her son, John, and her sister, Aunt Mimi. And she was walking back to her flat nearby and got run over by a bus. And John Lennon never got over that. If you want to have an experience, folks, keep that in mind and uh, put a set of headphones on and listen to his song, Julia, the lamentation for his mother. This is a, this is a boy crying out for his mother. Mm. And you listen to that and you tell me that the Beatles and John Lennon, in this case, were not artists, were not poets. Mm. You know, this is just a, quite a moving thing. And that's what... That's what the arts should do. They, they I, I get this quite, what practical purpose is the art or are the arts? Yeah. And I laugh at that and I say, well, what practical purpose is mathematics? Right. Or what practical purpose is, uh, you know, owning real estate? What practical purpose is, is anything? It is anything. Based only upon the constructs that we have in this world of what is quote unquote important and what is not. If, if there's an emotion, if there's a feeling, if there's uh, some intellectual uh, uh, fulfillment, um, but not even that, it, it, you don't, you know, you don't, you don't need to justify something because I think we need to really start to rethink the human experience. Oh, so you and, are on to something is. so good here. It's almost like if it's art, we have to come up with an apology for it. it. It's not this thing we consume. It doesn't buy into the whole greed thing. You know, unless you're, and I'm not putting down authors like Stephen King or Danielle Steele mm -hmm. or the, the ones who, no matter what they write, will have J.K. Rowling, you know, with the Harry Potter series, more power to them. Their names on the cover are, you know, this big and the titles are that big. They're publishing because of what they published. And as a matter of fact, the way the publishing industry today, mainstream publishing, houses such as uh, Bantam and Viking and, and, and the biggies, which are owned by conglomerates run by lawyers and bean counters, the, every time Stephen King does a book, those publishers lose money because they have to sign, spend so much to, for the rights to the book that they will never make it up. 
the ones who pay are the small time writers that you will never hear about, which is now a reason to avoid mainstream publishing. These are my views and, and go indie. You know, back in the day when I was uh, writing and selling my books, couldn't write them fast enough. I had um, an agent out of Boston, Thomas Hart Literary Enterprises. And he, he was uh, that rare agent that actually stayed in touch with his clients and, and tried to, I won't say he, he wasn't, he was not a lawyer by training. He was an accountant, but he knew how to file his teeth down into sharp points when dealing with the, <laughs> with the lawyers for the publishing houses. Now this is back in the eighties. And I remember they, the contract that <clears throat> Viking sent us for the impossible dream remembered. And it was this uh, long document with, you know, 50 clauses in it and all the whereas and wherefores and all the legalistic language. And he told me something I never forgot. He said, this is the contract they want. They would love you if you sign this. And he says, we're not going to sign this because we got to tell them what we want. And so we struck out the clauses we didn't want. He formulated the language to incorporate what we wanted and we struck a deal. Today, uh, if you're someone who is not a Stephen King or a JK Rowling and you sign with a, a major publisher, they're basically going to do what a, what I, as a publisher of this book, through Planet Media Books, and there's our logo right there, a large publisher will do exactly what I'm doing and not much more. Today, if you're not a big time author, you're required to do practically all of the marketing, practically all of the selling of the book. They, they want to take cost out. They'll throw the money at the big, the big guys and they will not give you the money if you're the small guy. It used to be back in the day, you know, uh, I wasn't known then and I got pretty decent advances. Sure. You know, now they act as if you're doing them a favor if you publish this book and you try to get in an advance and it's like you're asking them to, you know, do, do break the law or something. <laughs> and it, it goes to our point that, uh, that somehow artists are just pushed aside. They're, they're these people that just dabble in these wacky ideas and they don't really relate to, to us here. We're, we're making our money and we're signing the contracts and we're doing all these important things and we're at the press conference and we're starting wars and, you know, but we'll let these little poets and artists do their things and we'll have an event or two, you know, so we can show we love the arts and the, these indie platforms such as we're doing in the podcast or now that we're, we're doing with publishing. Uh, India is the way to go with music. India is the way to go with making. You want to make a movie? Don't go to Paramount. Don't go to Universal. Make your own film and find a distributor. You know, I had a fling in Hollywood back in the eighties. I got involved. It's a long story, which I won't tell, 
with the star of Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Mm-hmm. He's the guy who played the drill instructor, Sergeant Hartman. I don't know if you've seen the film, <clears throat> Full Metal sure. Jacket. Yeah, I am Gunnery Sergeant Hartman, your senior drill instructor. And from now on, the first and last words out of your filthy sores will be, sir, do you maggots understand? Under my training, I will make you ministers of war praying for death. But until that time, you are nothing but pukes. You are maggots. You are the lowest form of grabastic shit on the face of the earth. And it is my job to weed out all the non-hackers that do not pack the gear to serve in my beloved core. That guy. Yeah. Yeah. And I ended up in a... Got it down. (laughs) Got it down. Nicely done. Thank you. Thank you. I ended up doing uh, a book with that guy, a book and a screenplay. Mm -hmm. By that, you do a book, a film with Stanley Kubrick, you are on the map. And long story and how I hooked up with him, but I did for about three years. And we developed a novel and a screenplay. I had to go out to Hollywood. And it's a place where, let me put it this way. One producer actually had a pair of day glow shorts on that said domination. And he had a holster on his desk with squirt guns. That's Hollywood. Strange place even back then. This this was before it too was taken over by the conglomerates. Sold a couple of uh, not even screenplays, treatments. A treatment is something you do before a screenplay. One was the idea I had for a comedy. Another one was an idea I had for a serious film uh, based on the cheerful topic of suicide. And what I found out later, there's a great line in a film with John Turturro called, then the film is called Barton Fink. Fink is a New York playwright goes out to Hollywood. He's asked to write the script for a Wallace Beery wrestling picture. Not great art. He experiences writer's block. And anyways, he ends up totally disillusioned with Hollywood as I was. And on his way out, they're kicking him out of the studio and the Big Shot studio owner says, Fink, you're not a writer. You're a write-off. And I realized later that they bought my two projects as a tax write-off. My agent told me this. They had no intention of producing anything Uh, I think Paramount was owned by Gulf and Western at that point. Paramount was one of the studios and Gulf and Western for wanted their Paramount, their movie division to have tax law uh, write-offs for tax purposes, which they then transferred to another part of Gulf and Western. And I realized, yeah, I made some money, but I was a tax write-off and to this day, Hollywood devalues writers a dime a dozen. And uh, I yeah. would never go out there again or get involved with the movies. Uh, a script, anyways, is a blueprint. You, if a movie gets to the screen, now you got the producer and director just totally doing what they want with it. So 
it's it's not really a work in and of itself but that was my experience so and publishing is like that too now the the mainstream huge publishing companies are really owned by these larger corporations and they're just merely divisions and oftentimes will lose money deliberately on a Stephen King on a JK Rowling on a Danielle Steele so they can write off the money somewhere else in the company yeah it's a shell game yeah. and a money making scheme for them yeah and now you're seeing you know a lot of the creativity is is being uh pumped out in other places so you know you see a lot of creators on social media on youtube TikTok now is is big yeah. and even even today uh, even though those are more freewheeling, um, you're still, you know, seeing uh, pushback uh, from individuals and creators saying, wait a minute, you know, TikTok, you're, you're using my creativity uh, mm -hmm. to promote your app and to get more followers on your app. Um, so, so there's always control. There's always control of the medium in other words you know whether it's hollywood that does the production and the distribution whether it's TikTok, the app or youtube the app you know so unless you create your own uh, platform and so you know but i but i think you know this is happening so rapidly all the time that there's always going to be the new thing and the new thing and the new thing because you know facebook is kind of like 2000 eight you know <laughs> and 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 now it's more uh TikTok where you see creators and, and that yeah. sort of thing but um but i i guess that's part of the evolution as to when we said at the beginning well the internet was the wild west um now it has now consolidated and much and more regulated and, 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 and all that as soon as you start attracting numbers you'll find the people with the money the venture capitalists and vulture yeah the people <laughs> who have the money will come in and and if you have the numbers they sense a way to make money mm. we were talking about this in your kitchen john before we went on the well not on the air here before mm -hmm. we went on the photons and <laughs> are, are doing this but how if there's a way where they can make a buck off you they will <clears throat> i'll give you an example many uh, i hope many of our our listeners and our viewers are familiar with my blog, Planet Valenti. We're, we're now, it's 11 years old. We've done about 2,400 columns. We publish three times a week. And it started out just as a pure writing exercise to write for this thing called the internet. And to this day have not done any advertising of the site other than word of mouth. <clears throat> and sure enough, over the years, it's slowly built up. One tells two, two tells four, four tells eight, and so on. <clears throat> and it got to the point now where we had sufficient numbers where an IT guy that I met in Syracuse, New York said, you know, you're, you got enough traffic here where we can commercialize the site. And I'm thinking, well, why not? I made a rule I would not accept any local ads because i know how in in uh, commercial publishing whether it was with newspapers or film writing or books anywhere else if it's commercial there's a price to pay and i didn't want to have any local advertisers for as much as they say that there's a they, they, they use the term now firewall oh there's a firewall no. between 
the editorial and the advertising. Well, that's until until an advertiser, a big one, calls up and says, yep. "I don't like what you're doing." We've um, both or, been on the end of that, John. Yeah, or or if you have the publisher and the editors basically saying, "Hey, ease up." They're one of our big advertisers. Why don't you kind of shift? In, you know, so mm-hmm. it, it, again, firewall I, until <clears throat> you see reality. And I saw uh, this happen. We've all gotten every every media outlet I've worked for back when I was a journalist there, got one of those calls. There was some of that, yeah. And for sure. you know, it was like when I was in newspapers, the firewall was supposed to be between the editorial room and the business side, and it was a daily war and if you had strong editors they would stick up for their crew and stick up for their reporters and their editors and say no we're going to run this story i've seen it that happen i've seen where the the editorial side caves in spikes the story because it's going to piss off this important publisher whether it was a car dealer or a bank or or whatever it was Mm. These independent forums, such as what we're doing now and what we did with Third Person Singular, uh, our book, allow us to circumvent that. But I was getting back to my blog, planetvalenti.com. Check it out if you haven't. I think you'll have some thought-provoking fun there. We do three columns a week. It got to the point where we were getting the numbers where our IT guy said, you know, we can get ads. How do you do that? Well, he knew how to do it, the mechanism for it, the technology for doing it, ended up with Google basically becoming an ad agency for Planet Valenti. Mm-hmm. It works like this. I agree, signed a deal with Google that we would make space available to Google to run ads from companies that Google got. Right. So I would host the ads, Google would get them, and we would publish them and yeah. and the deal was google would get some of the money and i would yeah. get and some what google them. does in his algorithm says okay here's the content in the blog yep. our algorithm they, they don't sit there and read the blog and say oh no nope. well uh you know we think uh this would be a good space for they do uh, not joe read. biden ad or something like that what they do is you know it's an algorithm and then all, all of a sudden something that is advertising through google then pops up and that's the ad that shows up on, on the blog exactly well Google doesn't read the columns, but the algorithms read. And every so often I would get a message from Google that the ads for this particular column were taken down because the content they found was objectionable. And I remember through my IT guy trying to get them to define what was objectionable and they would not do it. They would just say, (laughs) of course not. No ads until you address the problems in the column. We did this a number of times. And finally, I told my guy, Jim, my IT guy, I said, nope, I want to do this. They are doing what I hoped to avoid. They are censoring what I want to say. He said, no problem. And he gave me a list of other companies that would do the same thing. And I went with the one that everybody knows. I went with Amazon. And so Amazon took the place of Google on planetvalenti.com. And I now provide space. Amazon fills them with their ads. And Amazon has not said a word about anything I have written. Not one word. We've been with Amazon now for maybe a year and a half. And 
if they stay out of it, I'm happy, they're happy. And it, it's just part of what you have to do, John, to make a living today. There's yeah. some part that you have to concede. And I've really never got the artist, you know, the, the artist who says, I will not compromise a bit. And that's not how it works. Uh, you know, I, from day one, when I decided I wanted to make my living juggling these 26 characters of the alphabet, I wanted to make money for that. I wanted to have to get money for from whomever wanted to pay me for writing words and speaking words. And I said, I don't want to end up as the tortured artist who's just writing all this great stuff and sticking it in the drawer. And I that's the interesting paradox. Of I don't want to be thing. the starving artist. As John. we're talking about the corporatization of things, there are these pockets of democratization that allow you to be um, unimpeded with mm-hmm. uh, you know, free speech, with you know, saying what uh, you would like to say as an artist or anyone, and having this uh, sort of tool that would reward and does reward if you have the volume of listeners, of viewers, of readers, uh, whatever it may be, there, there is that mechanism, you know, so, uh, you know, and that's the same thing in audio or, or video. If you have the numbers on YouTube, numbers. you know, you'll be able to, yep. uh, you'll be able to uh, reap the rewards of advertisements that are basically pumped in by the algorithm, um, not chosen necessarily by you, but and that's kind of understood. The consumer understands that as well. Great point um, at this point. And I would go back and say, okay, yeah. On my blog on planetvalenti.com. Notice how I keep saying that. <laughs> I know. But on okay. the blog, the question is, how did you get the number? They didn't come out of nowhere. They came yeah. out of here, just like you do. I live the life of the mind. That's my product. My wits create created the blog, and the widths of the the widths of of these three writers in our latest book <laughs> uh, produced this book. But I got the numbers on my blog because I wrote content that people wanted to read. Maybe they wanted to read it just so they could say, "What a what a son of a bitch that Valenti is," you know, and that's fine. We got the numbers. Mm-hmm. Now you get the numbers, and now you get as you. Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, a great way. word before it's, the it's, vultures. They come sniffing right. around, right? It, but in interestingly, in this in this way, you're you're backing into it, um, as opposed to uh, yeah, front co- front loading uh, front yeah. loading it and and convincing a publisher or convincing an editor that your content is worthy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, democracy has done its job or the democratization of the Internet has done its job. It it already says you're worthy because you're getting uh, the number of of readers. That backloading in and of itself is not a criterion for determining quality. TikTok is a great example. Good example. Yeah, of course. Uh, course. And that's the problem with with the democratization of media. Oh, yeah. It allows everybody. Yeah. It allows the junk 
and the chaff as well as the the kernels of wheat and the gems and and, and make no there mistake are, there's far more junk than there are right. gems and and trust me you know to, to get a, a million or two million viewers on tiktok there are some easy ways for some people to oh. to do that yeah. that doesn't necessarily include intellectual um strength you know what i'm saying so or artistic uh, or strength. artistic uh, strength or, or whatever however you want to describe it let's yeah. put it this way you know um there, there's a lot of things that sell <laughs> um, i'll give you another yeah. example of front ending or front loading a book project <clears throat> during the pandemic i was pretty productive i wrote a book that i've been wanting to write for 30 years it was a book that sums up everything i've learned about writing and a lot of it came from having to teach composition to college students. Uh, I taught comp one, comp two, expository writing, news writing, uh, courses in media, uh, a course in communication, the communication process. What is that all about? And I've been wanting to, in, in teaching courses, you would adopt handbooks and books like On Writing Well by John Zinser or Elements of Style by Strunk and White. And I said, it'd be neat. I've got something to say. I want to write a book where other instructors and other writers would want to have by their side as kind of like a how to and what I've learned about writing over the years. I wrote such a book and I approached one of the top academic publishers in the world look look them up peter lang publishing they have offices in berlin germany oxford england new york city la and i said i'm going to try them sure enough no agent i don't have an agent at this point i made the proposal met a wonderful editor, Danielle, Danny, D-A-N-I, Green. And she encouraged me to develop a proposal. We did, ended up with a contract to write the book, which I did. And then it goes through, they well vet these things. So in other words, I had to provide a book that they considered worthy enough. That we front had to front load. So now I'm dealing with a a traditional commercial publisher, but one that's not owned by a conglomerate. That's the difference. And they took the manuscript and uh, first it had to pass the editorial review in-house. It did. They then passed that to four, what do they call that when people in the profession uh, read the manuscript? Peer review. Four unknown to me they don't tell you who it is but peer reviewers read this book and basically would get back to the publisher with a report that yeah this book is good enough publish as is this book is good but it needs these changes no do not publish this book we got the four back all of them one had published as is and three had published with these changes and i have to say they were for the most part, really good changes. I steered the manuscript away from being a college handbook to a book that would reach a wider audience, which is the academic world, but also writers in general. 
And the book is called Write It Real, R-E-A-L. It's a book on how to write prose. And I revised the manuscript based on those recommendations. Then it went through two final reviews. Again, two of the two different peer reviewers now. So this is six in total had to go through it. And they came back with recommendations. Yeah, this is a go. I figure, great, now it's done. Then I get word from Danny Green, our, my marvelous editor. Thank you, Danny, if you ever see this, that it has to go through a pre-production review at Peter Lang Publishing. And we wait for that. Danny Green's assistant, uh, young man by the name of Joshua gets back to me with two minor changes. We do that. Finally, it's ready to go. And I'm pleased to say we hope that book will be out in June of this year, 2022. And so that's a case where I had to deal with a traditional publisher, but again, not one of the, the New York biggies, because you're not dealing with that publishing house, you're dealing with their owner, you're dealing with their bean counters who want to just make money however they can, and their lawyers who are afraid of everything. Hmm. And, and there you go. Many ways to do this, John. And there you go. So we should probably wrap this up. Can I just plug in a one I want more you to event? plug the event just because I, I'm just worried. I, I can't, uh, I don't have enough space in my <laughs> we, computer. We filled up the memory. I'd be, really, oh, God. I'd be really pissed if, if this didn't, uh, if this didn't capture everything, but uh, <laughs> okay. quick plug. Yeah, absolutely. Cause the first Fridays are back. First Fridays are back. That's awesome. The, the, uh, well, actually this is the first Friday art arts walk mm. in Pittsfield. It's mm. going to be on May the 6th at the Universal Unitarian Church, 175 Wendell Avenue, a beautiful brick mansion that was owned by the owners of England Brothers Department Store. For those of you who go back a little bit yeah. to Pittsfield, yeah. if the event is going to is titled Valenti and Valenti, an evening of art and poetry. And it features my lovely wife, Lisa Valenti, who was an artist, she makes her living awesome. that way. And that evening on May the 6th from five to eight, the, at that venue, 175 Avenue, they're going to exhibit a large room of Lisa's work that will be on show and on sale across the room on the same floor from six to 7 PM. The three authors of this book wow. are going to be reading wait a minute, from wait a minute. this book. So you're going to meet them for the first time. What? I've met both of them. Oh, you've met them. The three of Jerry and Paul have not met in person. Ah, okay. only through okay. email. Okay. okay, that's it, John. That's unbelievable. That's a wrap. Salute. I, you know, um, I mean, <laughs> we could probably continue the conversation after this. I just want to make sure this damn thing, uh, yep, captures everything because we have about two hours under our belt here. So, okay. Um, so uh, Dan Valenti, man, um, we're gonna have to do a and and we'll. Yeah, real quickly, we're probably going to have to do a, a double date on this uh, podcast at some point. Have me as a regular, Jeff. Have you as a regular? Bring Lisa in. I would love Cara, to do that. And we'll just, uh, I just got to get a couple more 
uh, cameras in here and a couple more mics and we'll be all set. But um, maybe, hey, if maybe you, a table. I know a venture capitalist called Dan Valenti who will <laughs> uh, help you invest in a project if you wish. Love it. All right, my man. Okay. Uh, peace Good out, to see everybody. You, man. Yep.